Hello guys, welcome back to your favorite podcast, Two Broads, with your two favorite broads, including... Technically, Uh your name goes first, but Jenna and Kalo. Oh, oopsies. Mm -hmm. It's okay. Guys, I am so... It's been a rough night. It's been (laughs) such a rough night. So just to give you guys some context, it is literally 12.35 in the uh, good old morning. Um, I have been on... What? You're right. It is so... I was like, what is she talking about? It is is so late. It is so late, early. I don't know what you want to call it. Um, I've been on a plane all day, flittering about a couple different states, trying to get home. Um, And now we're home. And then Kayla and I, we played good old tech support and fixed all of my, hopefully, technical difficulties. Um, To be sitting here with you all to give you what we are very excited to introduce as a very spooktacular... Storytime <gasps> episode. Yay! Yay! And also for those non-visual listeners, um you can't see Jenna's decorations really, but I promise she has some. But I tried. you can tell <laughs> you can tell right off the bat that this is definitely spooky theme because it's officially October. True. And true. Yeah, Guys, that's yeah. why we waited. We wanted it to be October yes. 1st. That was so it's intentional. N- yes, it, it is now official. We had to wait until 12 a.m. Clearly, when you guys are listening to this, it's already going to be like a few days in October. Um, but when we're recording this, this is literally the first hour of October spooky season um so we are super excited um and uh also I just want to say um my decorations here are pretty cute I have my little Coraline doll sitting on the couch with me um I have some pumpkin themed stuff to Nightmare Before Christmas themed stuff I literally have a Halloween wreath above me and I'm wearing a Jack Skellington shirt um and this was already set up, and I, I just literally moved my computer because I wanted to have fun. Yeah, she, she wanted to show you guys, and also she definitely shamed me for not having as much stuff in my background, and she literally told me to go to the dollar store to buy stuff, <laughs> so... But, like, I dollar store, <laughs> I mean, like, like garland, just so you can, like, literally put it on your blinds and, like, call it a day. Like, yeah. nothing so, extra. So stay you know? tuned, okay? I'm gonna... <laughs> this is gonna go into our, like, TikTok promo section right here, and I'm gonna have to duet it with me actually hanging up this stuff so Kayla doesn't come and kill me. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll work on it. We'll work on it. I'll try better, mm-hmm. guys. Just, just be happy I'm here, okay? I'm so tired. We're gonna get through this, we though. Are. And I am super excited to be giving you guys this content because... It is the 1st of October. It is the interesting... Uh, hello? What am I saying? The start to spooky season. Um, and so that being said, we are doing three, big three, episodes this month, um, all related to something spooky or creepy or Halloween related because it is, in our opinion, the most wonderful time of the year. Um, I do just want to give you guys a couple quick warnings um, about what we're going to be talking about in this episode. Um, Kayla's story in particular definitely deals with some um, paranormal triggers per se. Kayla, I don't know if you want to give any more insight into particulars just, for them. Just the, the other side and like people definitely, like if you're scared of that stuff or you are like, listening to that is bringing that kind of energy whatever you like believe definitely 
click off of this or skip towards um, the second half of the pod for Jenna's story because that deals with more uh, reality horror as I would call it. Um, so that is definitely just a warning to you guys who are listening that it's definitely going to be paranormal stuff, spiritual stuff. Um, so skip ahead if you don't want any of that jazz. But as you all probably know, um, Kayla and I are native to Las Vegas. Um, Native Nevadans. Nev- oh, no. Ew. Yeah, no, Ew. it's ugly. Also, if you pronounce Nevada like Nevada, we have I hate words. you. Yeah, definitely on our hit list. Mm-hmm. Um, nope. But one of the most spectacular things to do out here is a little attraction called Zach Bagan's Haunted Museum. Um, for those of ooh, you who... Ooh, ah, ah ooh, scary! <laughs> Just um, some sound effects for you guys. <laughs> for those of you who aren't familiar, um, Zach Bagan is, I think, the host of what used to be... I'm not sure if it still is, to be completely honest. Oh, it's it's still running. Okay, it su- got it. Wow, okay. Mm-hmm. Did not know. Um, a super, then, I guess, popular TV show um, called Ghost... I want to say Ghost Hunters? Ghost Adventures? Ghost... Mm, mm, second one. Ghost Adventures. Yes. Ooh, spooky. I've only seen, to be completely honest, like a couple episodes of that show ever in my life as it was like in passing on at somebody's house. Mm. Um, d- Don't have any bad thoughts or feelings. Was definitely like kind of into it, but just like never enough to like actually follow through. But you seem to have mm-hmm. a very strong connection to that show oh i just love it like i love paranormal stuff and like creepy stuff horror movies um any like especially paranormal investigations like i'm a huge fan of huge i like added an sh in there for no reason it's gonna be (laughs) huge um but anyways i am big fans uh or big fans yes me just me i am big fans big fans So my brain's not functioning. I'm a big fan of Sam and Colby um, because they do paranormal investigations and like literally I anytime they post something new, I always watch it. And like, that's why I love ghost adventures and stuff. Anyways, that that was just literally my two cents. I will let you continue. So anyway, basically one of the main host leads of that show um, decided that he had so much money and so much extra time on his hands that he wanted to open up um, a museum dedicated to all things paranormal, creepy, crawly, scary, spooky, serial killer-y, you name it, it's in there. So anyway, that is local to us. I haven't been personally, so I haven't like walked through this thing to see or feel any of the energy in there. Um, mm-hmm. or see anything for myself, but Miss Kayla Marie, our paranormal enthusiast, definitely has been. So, <laughs> Kayla, give us your uh, report, your Yelp review. What, what were your thoughts, feelings? Um, so, I went in 2020. Oh, wow. Um, Two years ago. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> really long time ago. Um, Keaton actually took me for our one month <laughs> One month anniversary. He. Um, wait, 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 wait. Can so, we just pause? What? I love that your boyfriend of one month was like, let me take my girlfriend to somewhere full of ghosts and serial killer <laughs> memorabilia. That's romantic. <laughs> it really was because he knew that I liked Zach Bagans. Um, 
like I said, big fan of the paranormal. Um, also, like Jenna and I have definitely talked about our experiences on this podcast before. Um, that is definitely a season one episode from a really long time ago. Oh, yeah. So I um, I think it was, what was it? The moon killed my battery? Is that the one? Oh, or maybe. Or is it just the paranormal Some, one? I, maybe it's just paranormal something. But it's definitely in there. So um recommend to check it out if you guys are interested. Um, but yeah, so he took me there. And I actually had just, like, right before then heard of the museum. Um, and I didn't know he had opened one there. And... He took me and like he literally like had me put a blindfold in the car because it was a surprise. Wait, wait, and wait. I thought we were going to the aquarium. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> Why did I what? say wrong? I love that you thought you were going to the aquarium too. <laughs> because I really wanted to go. <laughs> too though, uh, I love that he was again my girlfriend of one month. Romantic. Romantic. Ghost and serial killers. Now let me blindfold her and throw her right. in my car. <laughs> Get in. Um, I got in the car first, and then after we started driving, he made me put a blindfold in cool, 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 in cool. case I recognized the area. Because there's not it. like a big sign that's like, oh, did museum? Because you have to like go through like this little side gate yeah. into the parking lot. Because it's definitely um, it's like, like an it's, older part of town, right? Yeah, it's yeah, 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 definitely like old Las Vegas, and like it's a real house that mm-hmm. he turned into a museum. Um, so, anyways, um, yeah, I went, and that was September of 2020. Not all of it was creepy. Like, they literally had Titanic memorabilia in there, which I thought was super cool because, as we all know, I love the Titanic. But it's because, like, Titanic, spooky as in the way of, like, terrible, tragic accident. A lot of people have died their souls somewhere, maybe attached to those items. But it's such a big historic event that he was able to incorporate that into his museum which I thought was pretty cool because it was very like low-key um so I went and actually I'm next to that Titanic um attraction was right next to um the artifacts where my story takes place I'm just not remembering that because it was like wow super creepy thing oh Titanic let's learn some stuff you know (laughs) Um, so gotta gotta give it a little bit of balance can't freak him out the whole right right exactly and i like keaton was definitely like he's not really a big believer in the paranormal just because he's never had anything happen to him and i definitely like went in there with like a clear mind because also like um i was gonna say this like during my story but like skeptic skeptics like i'll leave it up to you guys like whatever your opinions are whatever you want to believe Um, but, like, I went in there with, like, an open mind, but also, like, I guarded myself because I was, like, I believe in this stuff. I don't want anything to Mm -hmm. attach itself to me. I don't want anything to happen to me. Yeah, don't want to take home any bad juju. We're not mm -hmm. paying for that Mm -hmm. as a souvenir. No, thank you. Yeah. 
Um, and like Keaton was like basically challenging every single thing in there because he was like, you're not going to do anything to me. And I was like, please do not associate me with him. We are not the same person. I don't know him. Like I said, I've had my own stuff happen to me. So like I'd rather pass. Uh, the only experience that I had there is that in some areas, like I would feel, um, like very lightheaded, um, And then also I felt like in the area that I'm going to speak about, I felt, I thought it was Keaton, but I felt him like pinch my butt and like, not like in a, in a cute way, but I was like, why did, I was like, why did you just do that? And I I remember like reaching and like, kind of like rubbing that spot. I was like, that kind of, yeah, that kind of hurt. And I didn't bother to like ask him while we were in there because we were also with like a few other people. I'm not going to be like, dude, did you just touch my butt? Like, (laughs) I'm not going to do that to him. So I waited until we were like basically leaving and I asked him and he doesn't really remember this. And I was like, Mm. how do you? Okay. Um, So I had asked Keaton and I was like, hey, man, did you do that? Why? Like, not that I was like, oh, my God. But I was like. (laughs) Like, just trying to confirm. And I was like, okay, was that you? And he was like, no. And I was, I was like, asking him, like, okay, like, don't lie to me to, like, spook me. Like, really? Mm-hmm. Like, did you? Like, I don't care if you did. I just want to, like, <laughs> make sure I'm not yeah. going crazy or anything. Um, And he was like, no, literally, I was, like, a foot away from you. Like, a foot behind you. Like, I didn't do it. And I was like, oh. And he's like, why? Did you, like, feel someone, like, pinch you? And I was like... Yeah, but you were the only person by me because the the dad and his, I think his kid, or maybe it wasn't a kid because he had to be 18 and up. I think it was just an older man and his companion. Um, <laughs> his his companion? SO. I don't, okay, okay. <laughs> um, were like, uh, like probably like three, four feet apart because we also had to oh. wear masks when we were in there. So oh, this was yeah. like COVID time still. Um, so that was my only experience. I don't want to like really confirm that like the ghost was like, boop, but, <laughs> um, but I love that like, Kayla's getting hit on even from people in the afterlife. They're just like, oh, the afterlife. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, but no, like I literally, and it wasn't like something small. Like I literally felt like a pinch, which yeah. is why I was like, you know, when you like get like bit by something and you're like kind of like mm-hmm. trying to move it me around my and, like, bug bites. This, yeah i'm like get this off of me even yeah. though the pain's not gonna go away so that's what i felt but that was the only thing and then the lightheadedness but that that was about it i didn't hear anyone speaking to me mm-hmm. and like obviously i was already kind of like on edge because i was like okay these things i do believe like things have energies attached to them yeah. good or bad that was it for me so share your comments or share your experiences in the comments <laughs> down below DM let us know us. if you went did you go into the basement did you spend the money <laughs> did you get pinched in the butt too let me know thanks <laughs> no that's just kayla we all know that's just kayla mm. Mm. thank you <laughs> thank you anyway so that is basically going to be or i should say that attraction is going to kind of be the backbone for our episode mm-hmm. i have my own kind of like pre-warning that I'll give ahead of time before I actually take over um but it definitely is like Kayla said more reality based think more along the lines of serial killers and kind of you know the concept of of death and any kind of controversy there um 
So we'll jump into that, but that is basically going to be our premise for this episode. And that being said, go make some popcorn, go grab some Halloween mm-hmm. candy or something because this get is in the be, mood, the spooky mood. Oh yeah, spooky mood. Um, turn on a candle, turn out your lights, whatever you gotta do to get in the vibes because it's gonna be a very in depth, very long story time mm-hmm. session, spooky story time yes. session. Um, so that being said, go get your snacks and we will turn it over to Miss Kayla for our first attraction. Um, Jenna did say the word basement earlier when we were talking about my experience at the Haunted Museum. And that is actually what we're going to be talking about today. There is, I also have a whole stack of papers in my hand specifically to narrate this story. Um... I'm going to be talking about the demon house that's located in Gary, Indiana. Um, and I'm going to be following it in chronological order. So I pretty much made a whole timeline from start to finish. Um, and the reason why this has to do with Zach Bagans is that Zach Bagans um, actually has that staircase in basement in his museum like he literally took it from the home and recreated it so it's like authentic in other words um i got my sources from indiestar.com um and i think it's just called the possession of latoya amens um which is the mother of the kids that we're going to be talking about and i also got my information from the zach bagans documentary called the demon house um he actually did a whole documentary on that and i will mention that more towards the end of the story um so to start of course like any other paranormal story everyone's like this is unbelievable mm-hmm. uh, unbelievable no way that happened but i'm gonna leave that up to you guys to decide whether you're skeptical about it or a full believer in the paranormal. So Latoya Amons, like I had mentioned, um, her mother Rosa and her three children, who were the ages of seven, nine, and 12, just moved into their 1926 rental home located in Gary, Indiana, specifically 3860 Carolina Street. Um, I've searched up the home myself. I've looked at it. It's definitely like a more rundown area. Um, so did we like you look would it think up? like did we like look it up on Zillow or like where did we look? Yeah, like I, <laughs> really? I saw pictures of yeah, I saw pictures pictures of it on Zillow. Is it for on top sale? of that? Um, I will get into that okay, towards okay, the okay. end. Sorry, just, jump in the gun. I'll answer it later. So just put it in the back of your head for now. Um, and I actually saw the inside of the house in the documentary. So Biggins actually shows all of that in his film. But it does look like a rundown neighborhood and um, probably at nighttime it already looks kind of spooky. Um, but the house itself, like just, I mean, it just looked like an ordinary house. It was built in the 1920s, you know? Um, so it's not like, wow, that's a creepy looking house. Like that definitely, like a conjuring house type of thing. Like it, it was a normal house. And what went down is something that you typically only see in horror movies. 
So for the sake of the story, since the children's names are actually not mentioned, probably because they are minors, um, I'm gonna give them names myself just so I don't have to keep repeating their ages over and over again. I love again. that you just said I'm renaming this woman's children. We're just doing it. So seven-year-old is gonna be Henry, and then I'm gonna refer to the nine-year-old as Max, and then their oldest, which is the daughter, um, who is 12 years old, I called her Roxanne. The activity began in December of 2011 when big black flies began to swarm their porch that had been previously screened in, probably to prevent something like that from happening. Um, and considering it was the middle of winter and you're in Indiana where it's freezing cold, it's snowing, the family thought that this occurrence was very odd, but they didn't realize that this would be the start of the traumatic events that follow. Another recurring activity in the home was hearing footsteps climbing up and down the basement stairs in the middle of the night. Um, and they would hear the creak of the basement door. Even after locking the basement door, they still heard those same noises. On March 10th, 2012, at around 2 a.m., the family had some company over to mourn the death of a loved one, but the night turned worse when LaToya started yelling for her mother, Rosa, and everyone started running up to the bedroom, including the friends that were over, and they saw her 12-year-old daughter, Roxanne, levitating above the bed. They began praying over her, and eventually she landed back down on the bed, but the friends who were visiting never came back. I mean, Probably I, out of fear. I wouldn't come back either. Yeah. Hello? Yeah. So they literally never went back to the house, um, and actually when the daughter had woken up, she had no memory of what just happened. The next logical step, as anyone would, they wanted to find someone who could help them. And realistically, an issue like this isn't something that you can fix on your own. So they ended up calling local churches, but one official from a church told them that the house that they had moved into had spirits in it. And what they needed to do was clean their house with bleach and ammonia and draw an oil cross above every door and window. And the family did exactly what they were told. Um, and then Latoya actually ended up putting oil on the hands and feet of her children, as well as drawing the cross on their forehead as well, kind of like what you do at a baptism. Mm -hmm. And they reached out to two clairvoyants, which are basically people who are like mediums in a way. Um, they claimed that she had, or the house, had more than 200 demons, and the only way to solve their issue is to move. Now, moving is not something that a lot of people can do right off the bat, so the alternative was to actually make a religious altar in the basement, since that's where the problem was occurring, you know, with the night times and the door opening and to burn sage and sulfur all throughout the house. And Latoya followed that instruction and created the altar. She covered the table with a white sheet. She placed a white candle on it and she actually placed um, a statue that had Mary, Jesus, and Joseph on it. 
Um, and while they were saging the house and using the sulfur um, in the house, they would draw crosses with the smoke as well. Um, and they had a friend help out. I don't know the name of the friend, but um, they helped out by also reading a passage from the Bible and they used Psalm 91 as they purified their home. Um, as you may have predicted, that was obviously not the end of the road for them and a lot more stuff had happened afterwards. They only had three days of peace and then things actually got a lot worse for them. So the whole family, Latoya, Max, Henry, Roxanne, they all had stuff happening to them except the grandmother, Rosa. Rosa had never experienced any type of possession um, but the family did, which caused their eyes to, to bulge and like their voice would deepen and um, they were feeling like they were out of control as in they just couldn't stop what was happening with their bodies. Um, and Rosa claims the reason why nothing had happened to her was because she had some sort of guardian or protection that the rest of them didn't have. Something that happened afterwards is that the seven-year-old, so the youngest one, Henry, began talking to a boy that obviously no one else could see, just him. And the conversations that they had was this other unseen boy explaining to Henry how, um, how it felt to be killed. And he had also been flown out of the bathroom, like someone was in there and just like literally like tossed him out like of the bathroom. him out the door. Yeah, God. yeah, so he like flew out of the bathroom. Trying to find more help, they visited their family ph physician, Dr. Anyukwu. I literally don't know how to pronounce his name, <laughs> which is gonna kill the vibe do you wanna, of our- Do you wanna art. spell it for the audience? Oh yeah, for sure. And if you know how to pronounce this, please let me know. O-N-Y-E-U-K-W-U. That's a lot of vowels. On Yukwu. I'm gonna call him Dr. Dr. Ani. Okay, I'm Dr. O. O-N-Y. Dr. O, there we go. Dr. O, sounds like a freaking villain in a Marvel movie. So, um, back to creepy vibes. <clears throat> After being described the events that have been happening to them, he had never heard of anything like that in his whole 20 years of working in that field. And he was so spooked during that visit. And it was detailed in the DCS report, which is the Department of Child Services because they got involved as well, um, that the medical staff actually saw the youngest child being lifted and thrown into the wall with no one around him. And during that visit at the hospital is when the DCS got involved. So it was that day that, or CPS, whatever you want to call it, but officially the DCS got involved and they sent a case manager whose name is Valerie Washington. Um, due to the concerns of Latoya being abusive, hence why her children were, quote, performing for her to make the story believable. Later that evening, they were still being examined and Henry's voice got deeper once again. And he began, I was gonna say telling, but threatening Roxanne that it was her time to die 
and he was going to be the one who killed her. The DCS had come to the conclusion that Amons was perfectly sane, she had no mental problems, and the children had no physical signs of abuse, so they didn't see any like bruises, cuts, or anything that would relate to abuse being an issue at home. And what happened next actually became proof that something was really wrong with this family. And they were still at the hospital, um, and a nurse and Valerie, the caseworker, saw Max walk backwards up the wall and basically like flipped over his grandmother off of the wall and land directly on his feet. And Valerie, she was, you know, interviewed by the police later on during that, during that time. And she was like terrified. Unless you're a professional acrobat who has done stunts, I do not think that would be physically possible for a little boy. I don't even think it's like professional acrobat. Like, unless you know how to defy gravity. Gravity? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, after that happened, they called the police and the ambulance because, again, what was going on was very concerning. And because of how unbelievable the story had sounded, a doctor went up to Max, Max basically asking him to do it again. Like, can you please do that again so that we can see it? And obviously he couldn't. And he also did not know what was going on. So, you know, again, memory loss. He was very confused and didn't know what they were asking and like why they were asking it. So the mom and Henry stayed in the hospital overnight while the rest of the family went to a relative's house. I think the relative they went to was their brother's, but it wasn't confirmed. But in the documentary, they had stayed at the brothers multiple times. The following day, it was actually Henry's eighth birthday and they had a mini celebration and had like a small birthday cake. Um, and so it was like a nice little thing for them to do because of everything that was going on in their house and with their family. But it got ruined by DCS announcing that the kids were basically gonna be taken away from the mother and it was going to be um, in their custody. Clearly when they're with their mom at home, something is going on. Like them being in the care of their mother is not safe for them. There is this reverend who is pretty relevant in the story. His name is Reverend Michael Maginot and he was leading a Bible study when he got a phone call from a hospital chaplain, which is basically someone who's there for like spiritual guidance, like in the hospital for people who are staying there. And he had a very shocking request, to say the least. He was asked to perform an exorcism on Amen's son, Max, the nine-year-old. Obviously, before jumping to any type of conclusion and just performing this exorcism, Magina agreed to see the family and interview them and rule out any other causes for their uncommon and strange behavior before he went through the process of getting an approved exorcism. So on April 22nd of 2012, Maginot interviewed the family for about two hours when Rosa, the grandmother, noticed that there was um, a flickering in their hallway from one of the lights. And every time 
The Reverend would walk past it, it would stop. Less than a week later, they were back to the house to let the DCS examine their home. And at this point, the kids were still in DCS custody and they asked an officer to come as well. And two more officers decided to join out of professional curiosity, but Latoya refused to go in. So her mom ended up being the one to essentially just give the tour of the house. The police, one of the police captains, Austin, he had mentioned to them that he didn't believe in demons, um, but he did believe in ghosts. So if that's confusing, a lot of people do believe in ghosts and like souls of people who have passed, but demons are their own category just because it has to do with a force much greater. Um, and also I feel like believing in demons means you believe in a lower being and a higher being, which is why um, people usually just result to people who have passed on. And the rest of the people that were there were just skeptics. They had not really accepted or denied the fact. They were just like, I don't really know what's going on um, upstairs or downstairs. And during the interview with Rosa, um, one of the audio recorders that the police had with them had stopped working because the batteries were dying. So there was a, a light that was flashing on it to indicate that the batteries were going out. And they thought it was odd considering they had actually replaced those batteries earlier that day, like fresh new batteries. And that's probably a routine that they do. So something like that doesn't happen. They're recording something really important. It's like, oh, your battery's dying. And another audio recorder was played back later on at the police station so like after everything had happened they were reviewing the tapes and an unknown voice was picked up saying hey austin the police captain on his way home he had stopped i think for gas and his cop car radio just like went all staticky and in the documentary he actually said that there was a voice like speaking through the thing. When he got home, he tried to open his garage and it just wasn't working. Like his garage door opener was not working. And obviously that could be dead battery, malfunction, wiring issues, whatever. But if it's happening, you know, just that one time after you visit that spooky house where people were getting possessed and all the other days you came home from work, your garage opener was working, I'd be a little sussed out too. I'd be kind of scared. And then the driver's seat of his um, 2005 Infiniti, so this is his personal car, not his squad car. The driver's seat started moving back and forth on its own. And when he got the car checked out at the dealership to be like, hey, what the heck is going on with my car? Like this seat won't stop moving. They said that it was the motor on a seat was broken, but a distraction like that could have actually caused an accident. After that, after that experience for Austin, he actually changed his views on his belief in demons. Um, but the mental health professionals and DCS workers were, they were still unsure about it. At this point in time, neglect and abuse were still the leading cause of the children's irrational behavior and they had found out that the kids 
were not attending school regularly. Um, and Latoya had told them that it's because the demons made them sick a lot or they would be up all night from the shenanigans that were going on at home that like they were unable to go to school the next day. So at this point in time, there was no, like even though people had witnessed stuff happening to these children, um, and obviously the, the grandmother Rosa had witnessed it all, um, there was still not any hard hitting evidence and factual evidence that was like, this is a demon possession. Because real, realistically, you can never prove that stuff. You can catch things on camera, you can take photos of it, videos of it, get an audio recording, but someone's always gonna be like, you manipulated that recording, you manipulated the footage, you edited that. Like, this, there's no way this is the raw image. Like, you could have corrupted the file into saying that it was the raw image, but it wasn't. And, you know, like, there, you can't trust anything unless you see it with your own eyes when it comes to the paranormal. So the DCS told the mom that she needed to have everyone take responsibility for their own actions instead of using demon possession basically as an excuse or a punishment. And it shouldn't be mentioned anymore. Um, And in order for her to get her kids back, she needed to find a job and a new house since theirs had been, quote, unsafe while the kids were still in the other homes. So she needed to do all of that to get her kids back. While LaToya was working on that, their house was investigated again. And it was LaToya, her mom, Rosa, Austin, the police captain, Chief Brian Miller, another officer from the last visit, Reverend Maginot, and two officers from Lake County, uh, which is a different county than the one they were in. So one of the officers from Lake County was Lieutenant John Grushka, um, and they also had brought their police dog and a DCS family case manager like the last time, but this time it was not Valerie Washington. They brought a new girl, Samantha Illick. Notice how I mentioned that it's a different person. Well, the original worker, Valerie, refused to come back because she was so scared. So. In other words, they needed a new person to take the case. Immediately when the police were walking around, Austin thought that it was strange. So this was an observation that he had made. He thought it was very odd that the whole basement floor had been covered in cement. So they had cemented the whole basement, but left the underneath of the stairs dirt and they didn't cement that one singular part of the basement. He began to look over there to figure out why the heck that is. And he saw an object sticking out of the ground. So the policeman dug a four by three foot hole right below the stairs. And they found a pink press on fingernail, a white pair, of ladies underwear. I don't like the other word for it, so I said underwear. Um, a political shirt pin, a lid for a pan, two children's socks, 
with the bottoms cut off below the ankles, candy wrappers, and a heavy metal object. In the article, they had described the metal object being maybe something that you hang up, um, like a curtain rod of Mm -hmm. some sort. Um, And that information is in the official police records, by the way. So, So after that, the two officers, Brian and John, had went back upstairs and just a reminder, Brian was Chief Brian Miller and John was the lieutenant. Um, They had went back upstairs and they were walking. I don't know if they were walking past or they went in, um, but they eventually went into the center bedroom and they noticed that there was an oily substance that was dripping off the blinds, not in a way where like it's like leaking oil, but you can see that there's like oil substance that's like, you know, starting from one end and like starting to go down another. But it was starting from the center of the blinds going down. So just like smack in the middle going down. They took a few photos just for evidence and they wiped it all off as anyone would with just some paper towels and to rule it out in case anyone in the house was doing this they were like maybe the grandmother's doing that for whatever reason we don't know the officers put a q-tip on the crack like towards the bottom crack of the door and closed it so that way if someone had opened the door to go inside you would see the Q-tip on the ground. So then you would know that someone came in there. But they had left for about 40 minutes or so um, before they had gone to check if um, anyone, I guess, tampered with the blinds. They went back and the Q-tip was not moved and the oil would like appeared again on the blinds and they checked the surrounding areas but were never able to confirm the source, like even to this day, like they were never able to confirm where that oil was coming from. They even shine lights outside the window to see if somehow it was on the outside leaking uh, towards the the inside of the bedroom window um, and, and nothing was to be found. And Samantha, who was the DCS worker that that ended up coming in replacing Valerie, um, she had noticed that there was a slippery yet sticky substance that was coming down the walls. And it was similar to the oil that was on the blinds and she touched it. Her hand started turning white, like, like no blood flow was going through her hand, specifically like in her pinky. And they took a photo of it and you can see that the rest of her hand, you know, was like losing color, but like her pinky was like completely white. And again, there were witnesses to this and like people were still skeptical, but like this literally changed Austin's beliefs on the paranormal. So after this, uh, Maginot went to ask permission from Bishop Dale Melksix Um, to perform an exorcism on the mom, LaToya. And so they did an intense blessing at the house and the two officers, the case manager, Samantha, attended this two hour ritual. After that visit, similar to Austin and his um, 
tragic events after visiting the house. She had third degree burns from a motorcycle. She then got three broken ribs from jet skiing, broke her hand after hitting a table, and then broke her ankle from running all within 30 days. Oh my God. Yeah, so after that second visit, all within 30 days, she had all that stuff happen to her. And a home inspector that had visited that house on his way home from visiting the residency, a tree nearly fell on his car and he experienced the feeling of being choked in his sleep by something unseen and developed cancer shortly after that. Continuing with the exorcisms, um, because names have power, as we might have seen in the Conjuring movies, um, for the exorcism, they actually found names of demons that related to their situation. Latoya began convulsing numerous times, and that was during the first exorcism, and she felt an intense pain that was coming from within her body that felt like a demon was trying to hold on to her still. and. She couldn't really describe what the pain felt like because it wasn't really like physical pain, um, but she she described it as being as intense as birthing pain. Eventually, later in 2012, uh, Latoya moved into a new home in Indianapolis and claimed that the events had all stopped after she moved. They did one last exorcism in June of 2012, and that was the last time Latoya and Rosa ever saw Maginot. And after those events, Charles Reed, the landlord, so the original owner of the house, had to ask the officers, or any officers, I guess, to stop driving by the home because it was scaring their new tenant. And Charles said that nothing ever occurred before the Amens and nothing ever occurred after the Amens had moved oh, out. Wow. And then in November 2012, Latoya finally got custody of her children again and they live without fear in their new home. Um, so that was the whole story of the possession of Latoya and her three kids. And even though that was the end of that story, I'm going into details of the documentary that Zach Bagans released and just um, giving you, I guess, more present day information. So fast forwarding to today, the house is actually no longer in existence because Zach Bagans bought the house for $35,000 back in 2014. So two years after all those events happened. And just to add on like that, that family story, made like national news headlines like everyone heard about it they literally called it the demon house or the portal to hell um but he bought it in 2014 and then demolished it in 2016 after um he was finishing up his documentary because he basically believed that like this house literally should no longer exist um, he took the original staircase from the house to the museum which is the one that i was um basically the room that I was in and he took dirt from the original plot of land from the original house um, and brought it to the museum so that was the foundation of where the basement was so fun fact Netflix is currently working on a film adaptation of this story 
And in 2019, Zach Bagans and his crew filmed a documentary there called Demon House. Um, I, well, I guess it was released in 2019. Um, it took him three years to finish. So it, that's why they demolished it in 2016. So it officially released in 2019, took a total of three years to finish his documentary, which is a really, really long time considering yeah. what the story is. Um, there was a lot of stuff that went on that I'm going to speak about, which is why it took him so freaking long. Um, he claimed right off the bat at the beginning of his narration, he claimed that the film is cursed in the way that everything that could go wrong went wrong. Uh, he was also a skeptic at first because he thought that the story really could have just been for attention and money because a lot of people do that just so that way they can get money out of it, make a movie out of it. And, you know, people become very theatrical once they realize money is involved. So he went basically as an investigator um, and came out a believer of this story. Um, and he interviewed almost everyone that was involved with the story except unfortunately he couldn't interview Latoya or the Amons family for that matter because funny enough, a big Hollywood producer, um, he was threatening Zach about his documentary because they wanted the film rights to make a movie out of the story and the Amons family said that they didn't want to be a part of the documentary at all probably because they were under contract or negotiating a deal with said Hollywood producer. At the beginning of the film, while they're filming at the house, because Zach had just bought it, and oh, I'm so sorry, I keep scratching this, because um, Zach had just bought it, and I believe it was his first time at the house, um, he saw someone pull up in a car, and he walked across and talked to a woman who was in this car, and the woman was someone named Mika, and she actually used to live in that house with her mom and brother like a really, really long time ago when she was like pre-teens and she w already had three kids um, who were like teenagers, I think. So like it was r a really, really long time ago. Um, she actually had never went into that basement until that day. Um, but when she lived there, like, she never had anything paranormal happen. Like, there was no noises or running up and down the stairs. Um, but she actually explained the reason why she never went into the basement, and it's, like, kind of sad. Um, her brother, her, I think it was her older brother, he used to live down there, so he took the basement to be his room, because, like I said, it's a small house. It was only two bedrooms and one bathroom, so it was probably the mom got one, she got one, and then the brother took the basement. Um, and she had this recurring dream, not even a dream, a nightmare, of someone telling her that someone she knows is gonna die soon. And she had that nightmare a lot. And she told people about it because she probably was scared. I think she mentioned she was like 10 years old when she lived there. Her brother, actually ended up getting shot and killed um, after that, and so she never went down there until she visited that day. After filming, we had already discussed the effects that like the house had on some people, um, but after they filmed, or after just d during the filming of this documentary, there were quite a few things that had occurred. 
um, to Zach, his crew, people he knew. Um, and it kind of reminds me of the Exorc exorcism or the exorcist, um, which is a, a classic horror movie because there's a legend that essentially that whole set is cursed because people died and there was a lot of things that went wrong. So that's why I said, like, I do believe that energy gets attached to things. Just after two days of Zach interviewing the original officer, Austin, um, he went into the emergency room, literally just two days after, he went into the emergency room because after he exited a restaurant, he slipped on ice, like with both his feet, slipped on the ice and literally did like a whole somersault, he said, and it caused him to, to bleed from his head. Oh, jeez. Um, and he didn't know he was bleeding until after and like people were like screaming and like telling, like, you know, calling 911. He was actually shot. I don't know how, how fast this happened, but he was actually shot from a home invasion because he's an officer, but he he did survive. Um, and then just after, again, two days, so same thing as Austin, after two days of Mika and her three kids visiting, her daughter, Erica, attempted suicide by ODing on meds and stabbing herself. And she actually stabbed, oh, this like part is really creepy, she stabbed a hole in each of her wrists, like resemblance to like the crucifix, like when Jesus was on the cross, like like identical. Um, and she told her mom that she was gonna kill her in her sleep. And I don't like that uh, you just said that and also I'm starting to noises in my house. Stop, so. <laughs> don't scare me. And that alone made one of the documentary crew members like quit immediately, like on the spot. But she had called Zach being like, this just happened. After that, Kevin Amens, who is the brother of LaToya, actually got kicked out of, of where he was living, where LaToya was also living with her family because she thought that some dark energy got transferred to him shortly after he was interviewed. So he just got kicked out because he went to the house. But I'm not done yet. There's, there's, there's a lot more. After Erica's story, the daughter who unfortunately uh, attempted suicide, after the story hit headlines in relation to the demon house, Zach's good friends, um, Mark and Debbie Constantino, they appeared on the show Ghost Adventures, which is his show, um, a few times and they actually tried to contact the demon remotely and they put like the audio recording like in the dock and stuff like that so debbie constantino called zach about their findings um you know telling him like hey i think we were able to like contact it um maybe we can figure out like what it is what it wants um but unfortunately literally just a few months after that debbie and her roommate she was living with were murdered by her husband, Mark, who also ended up killing himself at the scene. Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like he, he was just like heartbroken over it because they were both really good friends of his. There is this man, Dr. Taff. Um, he is a physiologist, which basically has to do with, I guess, like 
the Earth's like electromagnetic fields and like stuff like that. Um, and he was only in the house for a few hours because um, they were, you know, looking at the basement, seeing because sometimes there is research that when there's like, I think more of that like electromagnetic energy, um, things are different in that certain area. And it's like, you know, the Earth's natural energy and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was the same. Like it was the levels were regular, um, which was expected. Um, so after they were done with that, they all went back to the hotel and he woke up and like he said, like he woke up like on the ground. So he fell off the bed and his ears were bleeding. And so he checked into a hospital later on and they told him that all his organs were failing and they didn't know why. They could not find all, literally all of his organs were failing. That's a lot. (laughs) Then that very same night that his ears were bleeding, they did not know this was happening at the same time. One of the cameramen named Adam began vomiting blood that same night that Taft's, Dr. Taft's ears were bleeding. You know, Zach and the rest of them, like they didn't know what was going on. He was like chilling in Zach's room and then he like ran to the bathroom and then he was like vomiting blood. And then he ran out of the room and like went to the elevators and started screaming for Zach. So Zach told them like to begin rolling. Like you literally see the camera turn on. He's like, keep it rolling, keep it rolling. Cause they had no idea what was going on. And it's a documentary. You want to record everything. Everything is evidence. Zach originally told them to begin rolling because he was so unsure what they were going to see because he went to the elevator elevators and started screaming Zach's name like screaming like in this hotel hallway he like Zach like swore that he was going to see like a dismembered body or something like the way that he was screaming and so they checked the elevator and they see nothing nothing's there and this one's like one of the like most bizarre stories out of all of them so they check the elevator, they see nothing. And then Adam comes down the hall. Like you can hear him like kind of running and like Zach like steps back. Cause he's like, whoa, what is that? Mm-hmm. And it's just Adam, but he like starts screaming and like swearing at someone who isn't there. Like he's like at the elevator screaming. I don't like it, I don't like it. And the next couple of days, his behavior is still like unchanged like he's still very off-putting like you can tell that he's not the same person and he's acting very different um and he actually told zach to go back to the house smash the bathroom mirror and slit his own throat with those pieces of glass and zach had no choice but to fire him because like his behavior was just like unacceptable they were offering him help and he refused so something that i actually didn't mention um but the week before going to the demon house zach actually had a nightmare of this like seven foot tall goat man Um, with like really like long horns that had black smoke coming out of its mouth and it was forcing him to breathe in that air 
And so he didn't tell anyone about it because he was like spooked by it, but he's not gonna go share it with everyone. Like, hey, this is a nightmare I just had. Um, Zach actually got a text from a psychic he was he knew that he was close with, literally telling him, like, wherever you're going, do not go. I just like saw this like six to eight foot tall, like goat man figure thing. Like it does not have any good intentions. No, like this is you. not good for yeah, you. you. Like, please no, do not like no. like protect yourself. When the crew asked Adam what he saw in that elevator, no, 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 he looked no, no, right no, at Zach no. and all he said was, and I quote, I think you know what I saw, man. He didn't even describe it. He just looked at Zach and was like, I think you know what I saw. Adam um, basically, like he's still like unchanged um and he refuses to d talk to zach or about the house and it seems like there's this st like dark energy still around him like even after um he left the dock he got like a huge like triple six tattoo on his hand like a huge one and it's the same hand that he felt something touch him when they were in the hotel discussing and lastly zach um, had something happen to him and he developed a permanent condition to his eyes called diplopia um, and he went to a series of appointments after um, filming because the last day that they were there um, he was like I'm gonna go into the house by myself for like 10-15 minutes um, like in the dark you know, because he, 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 he's a go-getter. He's like, I have to, I have to prove it to myself. I have to prove it to these people. And he starts to get these severe pains that he feels like behind his eyes um, at that last night at the demon house. And it actually started, his, uh, started to cause his eyes to kind of like cross in the way that it makes his vision blurry, like literally the day after. After going to a few appointments, the doctors told him that it's permanent and the cause is unknown. And he now has to wear prism glasses every single day. Uh, and you're watching I... Disney Channel. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Ding. Um, yeah, the whole going in by myself in the dark. Why? 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 Again, go I get her. Like, Gotta prove no, it. Gotta prove no, it. It's, it's like the... Here's my thing. Okay, I'm not saying that whatever about no whatever, I'm not gonna hurt anybody's feelings, believers or skeptics. I'm just saying, okay? Same way I feel about the ocean, okay? I do not control it. <laughs> it is bigger than me. I don't Next. fully understand it. I'm not gonna go and fuck around in it. So, like, just... Just have the common sense to respect the things that you know you may or may not be in full in total control over and just be smart. Mm -hmm. You know, just, just. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, I mentioned this like at the beginning, how like he was also a skeptic and just wanted to make sure that these people weren't BSing him. Um, but he did, uh, the home inspector that had almost mm -hmm. had the car tree on his car. Yeah. Um, he inspected the home because Zach wanted to make sure that there was no other um, cause that could maybe lead them to acting this way. So they did find, so I, I basically, for anyone who's like a skeptic, 
they did find black mold in the home, like in the attic and carbon monoxide in the chimney. And th- all the things that they found could lead to hallucinations, delusions, yeah. possession, like, um, what's symptoms it or like- Symptoms, yeah, yeah, yeah. After all of that, he was definitely a believer in their story. Well, I don't know about you guys listening, but I'm sleeping with my lights on. Um, now, to give an updated timestamp, it is 2.13 in the morning. Um, so we have endured two full hours of Kayla scaring the absolute crap out of us. Just me? Cool. Um, oh, and, yeah. and me. I'm oh, scaring myself. and herself. Yeah. But but she likes... Yes. Here's the difference, Kayla, between you and I, is you look at the stuff and you're like, that's interesting. Oh, tell mm-hmm. me more. And I'm just like, I you do. can stop talking. I think I'm okay now. <laughs> like, literally, at one point, you were about to tell me, like, yeah, and then he asked him what he saw, and I just muted you. Like, I watched your really? mouth move, and I did not listen to what you oh said. It's like, the listeners can have that. I don't I don't need that at 2.13 in the morning. <laughs> ah! Well, guys, hopefully you enjoyed Kayla's uh, paranormal side of story time. Um, I have a little one for you, and it is one, not as long, and two, definitely not as creepy. So if you're like, man, I would really like to end this podcast on a note that doesn't leave me terrified to uh, turn my lights off, hopefully this does that for you. Um, this You've is come def- to the right place. You've come to the right place. Thanks for sticking by. Um, I don't want to leave you absolutely terrified as you go on to do whatever else you're going to do. So I know someone's just like cleaning their bathroom. Like, great, I'm afraid to open my closet now. <laughs> like, I don't want to do that to you guys. So um, the, the genre of like horror and like the kind of scared that I can do and that I actually do find more interesting is when it is based in real life just because I feel like there is more like tangible science and things like that that people use to like collectively explain why people act a certain way Um, like behavior studies really interesting to me and this was something that I actually didn't really know anything about like I heard the name of this specific person but I didn't know any of the backstory Um, I didn't really like do any previous research Um, and this one actually it's not super creepy it's not like a gruesome serial killer story by any means um but it is just kind of like a controversial one that i want Kayla, like specifically your opinion on because i still don't fully know how i feel about it um Mm, so i'm gonna just jump right into it so another attraction at zach's museum is something that i think if any of us just like saw it parked on the street you like wouldn't think anything of it you'd probably be like man somebody should go like tow that um but in 2015 zach bought a 1968 volkswagen van from a pawn shop in detroit which i was like cool why did he buy a van who cares michigan um But the reason behind this purchase um, was that in its prime, that van belonged to none other than Dr. Death, who, for those of you who don't know, is actually um, Dr. Jack Kevorkian. And that was the name that I was like, I've definitely heard that. Like, I've definitely heard that name come up, but I didn't 
know his backstory. I didn't know like where any of that came from. So for those of you who might not be familiar with Dr. Kevorkian, I will do a little bit of a rapid fire background for you just to give you some context. Um, Kevorkian was born in 1928. 28, this is, this is a while back, okay? In Michigan to two immigrant parents um, who were both very Christian, very religious. And I'm not saying that to bring any kind of spiritual paranormal aspect to the story. That's definitely not a part of it. But I do think it's interesting to have that context, just to kind of see how this person grew up and what beliefs they were brought up around. Um, especially because Jack was known to be the kid to cause a ton of trouble in church. He was known for disagreeing with really common religious foundational beliefs. Um, like he didn't believe in miracles and he definitely didn't believe in the concept of like an all knowing, all present, you know, forever around you kind of God. He just didn't think that was something that he believed in. Um, so he ended up fully, you know, his doubt became so big that he ended up fully questioning his religion so much and completely stopped going to any kind of church service at age 12. So got brought up from the age of, you know, whenever to 12, raised that kind of upbringing. His parents still believed, but he just stopped going. Um, and before I go any further into this guy's backstory, I do just want to give like my little baby uh, preface to anyone listening because I don't know everybody's past histories and I don't want to drag you through something you didn't sign up for. Um, so this story definitely does contain commentary on things like terminal illness, chronic illness, um, and you know suicidal ideation and attempts. So if that's something I know, you know, Kayla's story touched on it a little bit here and there, but because of the paranormal context, that might not have impacted you as much. But because this is definitely more reality based, I just wanted to give you all a heads up. So if you want to tune out, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna be judged if you don't listen to my story. I want you guys to do what's best for you, and I completely respect whatever choice you have. So just wanted to give you all a heads up before we um, jump back into this guy's life story. So, all right, this guy raised with a very Christian family, um, and then we're going to fast forward now from age 12 to age 27. So this is now 1952, so out in the 50s. Um, Jack went ahead and graduated from the University of Michigan's medical school with a specialty in pathology. So for those of you who don't know, pathology is the study of essentially the causes and effects of different diseases. So they're like disease detectives in a way. Um, they really are interested in figuring out why certain diseases come about and then how those certain diseases um, play out across someone's life and if they ultimately lead to death. So that's kind of their fascination there. Um, after he graduated from medical school, he went only about four years without doing anything crazy or noteworthy, um, had a quiet four years, um, and then just really began a strong, steady stream of controversy. Um, and really, it all began in 1956 when he went ahead and told the medical world of a new project he had started that he was super excited about, um, where he actually was going around and photographing the eyes of dying patients. Okay, well that's creepy. I know. So like, can you imagine like 
being in a hospital, you're with your loved one. It's the 50s, mind you, okay? It's not like, oh, let me pull up my iPhone. Like, whatever tech you have in the 50s. It's like, oh, I'm so sorry, your loved one's dying. Can I take a picture of their eyes? Like, ex yeah, excuse funny. me, and funny, but it's, it's not funny, but like, can you imagine like a physician coming up to you and like, oh, it's it's for a research project. Like, I just think that's so bizarre. Um, and so did a lot of people. And that's actually the kind of first pinpoint where his nickname of Dr. Death came from. Um, it wasn't based actually on him doing any killing, but it was just his fascination with mortality and people when they were dying, um, which definitely also explains why he picked a specialty in pathology. But that was his first little tidbit that was just super controversial. Um, but that was also definitely just the tip of the iceberg of what this guy started getting into after that. Um, it was only two years later that he actually ended up being asked to leave his residency at the University of Michigan's um, medical facility because he embarrassed himself and his um, medical facility so much for proposing a experimental idea to a big research panel out in Washington, D.C. So his idea, this man stumbles into DC and he says, you know, I have this great idea, I'm gonna pitch it and hopefully get a lot of support and funding and approval to actually carry out this experiment, which he thought was gonna do a lot of good. Um, but basically what ended up happening is he walked into this room and said, I would like to work with consenting convicts. So people in jail who were going to be in prison for a really long time. Um, so anyone who consented, I would like to sign them up to undergo different types of fatal experiments. So essentially performing procedures and different kinds of medical practices where in the day and age that he lived in, he knew the outcome to be fatal. And he wanted to conduct those to study kind of the, the symptoms and the effects of those procedures. Again, his study is pathology. He's really interested in, you know, disease and kind of that point from you are now sick to you are now dying. Let me see those symptoms and track them. Um, but to anybody else who isn't minded like that, having a guy walk in and tell you, I want to sign up a whole bunch of convicts and have them die is kind of just out there for a medical professional with a license with a conscience to do no harm to walk in there and pitch to a room full of people i was gonna say like not siding with him but i'm like kind of valid like i feel like that research would actually be helpful in the way where you can see exactly I mean, granted, it was the time that it was in. I don't know how great the technology was or how mm -hmm. advanced um, you could actually, like, see the disease. But, you know, the actual duration of how long it takes from step one or phase one, phase two, maybe see how it affects, like, blood cells or certain mm -hmm. parts of the body. And, you know, if you conduct that experiment on, you know, a few different type of people, a few different types of people how that would affect each individual so i like obviously it's not saving lives so it's not really like a plausible idea for doctors at a meeting convention whatever and be like okay so your whole thing is like killing people 
<laughs> exactly. And, and so that's kind of why I find this individual's story so interesting is because, you know, even to this day, people kind of look at all of the work he was doing as something where, you know, he was ahead of his time. He was trying to, you know, come up with different ways to get to information sooner. But, you know, taking the context that this was the 50s, you know, that was still a time period in history where, you know, things like that were super controversial. And like you said, like technology wasn't at the point where we could, you know, necessarily like hook somebody up to a bunch of monitors and monitor them for 24 hours straight. Like the the actual practice of how do you carry that out in a like civil and humane way, I think is where like it kind of fell short and where a lot of people at that time, especially in the culture of, I think too, back in the fifties, there was definitely a little bit more of like a very strong, like religious undertone to lots of things in society. Um, so I definitely could see, you know, some, some man walking in and saying, I want to sign a bunch of people up and, and ask them, Hey, can I kill you? and then kill them. It is definitely just like a weird thing to pitch to a group a of professionals. questionable. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, I don't, I definitely think that it would come off the wrong way. Like, if it was, if there's a way to do that without seeing that be the outcome and like actually being able to like save that person, just being able to give them said disease and be like, you're gonna be healed at the end, but we need to mm -hmm. study it and know it more. But again, fatal outcome yeah. purpose is literally oh, let me do to my research. Watch you like, die, yeah. Yeah, they're gonna die. <laughs> exactly. Um, I'd be like, okay, thumbs down. I have morals. Okay. <laughs> okay, exactly. And not to laugh about that. I think, you know, it's still like a very serious thing oh, to like terrible. bring up. It's terrible. But after that, um, he, you know, that idea got shot down. He said, okay, cool. No one's going to fund that project. I'm going to try something different. Um, and kind of rounding up his chain of weird experiments, um, he ended up publishing a uh, journal, so an article in a medical journal um, that he wrote himself on some work that he was doing and funding by himself, um, where he essentially was trying to figure out how to conduct blood transfusions. So that's where, you know, if you guys go and be good humans, go donate your blood. Um, someone takes your blood and they process it and then they put it in a new human. Um, he was wanting to study that process, but from making the blood transfusions start with corpses. So he essentially wanted to take blood from a corpse and transfer it into a live human being. Um, wouldn't, I'm confused because <laughs> wouldn't that blood like not be good? Like, so yeah, very, very good question. Um, he was trying to figure out, you know, again, you know, pathology minded figuring out, is there a time window in there? How does this work? Can we do it? Will it work? And he says his inspiration for, you know, that study was um, potentially for, you know, uh, combat zones or, you know, places like on battlefields and heavy mm -hmm. war where, you okay. know, you maybe don't have resources to a blood bank. You can't, you know, keep draining a certain person of their blood because you know, that's mm -hmm. the only person with that blood type. Um, so that was his, his rationale for why he wanted to be doing this. And he actually ended up using himself as a test subject as well and ended up giving himself hepatitis C 
from trying to give himself his own blood transfusions from corpses. So, like you said, isn't that blood probably not good anymore? Yeah. Yeah, you probably well, will get like, hepatitis. I feel like it's literally the same effect of leaving food out and it growing mold. Like, <laughs> probably. it's dying. It's probably dead. Like, I don't... I don't... Bacteria, whatever. Exactly. Whatever. It, it completely. And I think that, you know, it just kind of goes to show his, his fascination with death and you know how what does it look like to see somebody die how close can we get to death and still interact with it um which is it's just really strange like i understand it's a it's a concept that we don't fully grasp and we like you know we had a whole podcast episode on death and dying and how weird it is so we we get it dude but we're not trying to study corpses so Anyway, um, let's jump away from all the weird stuff he was trying to work on and go back to that van we talked about at the very beginning. Um, And in order to talk about that van and give some context as to how it plays into um, Jack Vorkian's story, we need to introduce a woman named Jeanette Adkins. So Jeanette Adkins was a 54-year-old woman who lived in Portland, Oregon, good old Pacific Northwest. Jeanette, she was a wife and a mom of three boys. Um, And the really unfortunate part of her story is she had recently been diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. Um, which for those of you who don't know, it's a big memory loss issue. Um, a lot of people, you know, end up dying from it and kind of towards the end of their lifespan, they are essentially, um, people like describe them as kind of shells of themselves because there's so much of their life that they don't continue to remember anymore. If it's not a terminal illness, it's a chronic illness. It's not something that, you know, you can take a medication and it goes away in two weeks. Um, so to be diagnosed with something like that, it's definitely a really big life-changing event for somebody, especially, you know, someone who's 54 and you have three growing children. Um, it's definitely a big life change. So after she had gotten her diagnosis, according to her husband, um, she was just really distraught about the whole thing. And she was really confident and very certain and adamant on the fact that she would rather just die early than to have to live out her condition um, and to see the impact it would have on her, her personality and her family. Um, she basically just wanted wanted to throw her hands up and say, I don't, I don't even wanna get to that point. Like, let's just, you know, <laughs> let's just cut my losses while, while I'm doing all right. Um, and I wish I really could like find out more about kind of her her mental state at the time. And I'm sure, you know, when you have somebody like that, you encourage them to go to therapy and talk to people. Um, but all of the records that we've seen from her husband and any of the family members who have left comments is that she was very adamant on the fact that she would rather die that day than wait out to see how this um, diagnosis was going to impact her life. So that's something to keep in mind. I feel is very understandable because especially when you know it's fatal and there there's a way to prolong your life but there's no way for this disease sickness whatever it is to completely be done with and you can move on and you know live out the rest of your life healthy I understand like why she would be in that mindset so like I can't really like blame her and I understand like the whole therapy and stuff like that but it's like if I was like 
going into something knowing I was going to be in like severe pain and like you know mental suffering and stuff like that it's like that like kind of sucks and it's like even if it's like oh but you can you can still live for like 10 plus years it's like yeah what cost like I'm not gonna be me you know I'm not gonna be myself you know no I agree and I think at that point you know it's not just like the the length of your life it's also the quality of your life and if it's not you know quality of life you're happy with and absolutely I can kind of see like how you can come to that conclusion um so anyway that's kind of where Janet was mentally and kind of what she was trying to to deal with Um, And one day, Janet is just going about her life, and either through the newspaper or some other form of press, she ends up hearing and learning about Mr. Jack Kevorkian because he was up to some weird shit again. Good old, good old Jack doing some crazy ass stuff. I was gonna say, how did she just like find out? I just, and there's no Google. (laughs) There's there's no Google. So it was definitely like a big um, press announcement. There was definitely like lots of newspaper coverage of this because Kevorkian had come to the press essentially and said that he had a new invention um, and this invention was very controversial because he labeled it as a suicide machine Um, and he made this machine using $30 worth of scrap parts that he got from garage sales and hardware stores. Mmm, sanitary. Sanitary. and I do have a note here that's saying, you know, $30 back around this time when we're talking about Janet, we're talking about, you know, 1990s, um, late late 80s, early 90s. So $30 back then is probably closer to $65 today in 2022. But still, for, for a medical invention, a medical device that you are um, promoting and publicizing. And using on people? <laughs> we're not there yet, but good, good oh, guess, Kayla. Oh. Um, yeah, maybe we have a bigger budget for that, is, is just my personal yeah. opinion. Um, Kevorkian goes to the press and he announces this machine that he is, again, super proud of because he's a weirdo who loves death, um, and is saying, I have created a suicide machine. Look at it. This is what it does. Da, 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 da. And so when Janet hears about this, immediately she is like, that is a guy I want to talk to. Um, and she <laughs> eventually reached out to Kevorkian about his invention and kind of the concept of assisted suicide. Um, and he agreed to meet with her. And so they ended up, you know, making a reservation and they met at a restaurant near Kevorkian's house for dinner um, just to kind of talk about his invention and that concept. And what I find super interesting, um, which not a ton of articles covered, was the fact that when Janet went to go meet with Jack, she didn't go by herself. She actually brought like a really good friend of hers who has been nameless in anything that I've read about. I haven't found her name anywhere, but like people have said like she did not go to that meeting with this man by herself. Like she definitely brought somebody with her. Um, And both of them actually, you know, end up being participants in this conversation and, you know, got a good understanding of how the invention worked, what kind of procedure or process would be needed to essentially carry out an assisted suicide. So it wasn't like Janet was just there by herself. She definitely kind of had like a confidant and witness with her for that conversation. Um, And Kevorkian claims that he used that meeting with her to determine whether or not he thought she was sound enough in mind to understand what he was 
telling her and kind of what they were talking about um, and really wanted to make sure she could make her own decision about it. Um, and he even had her sign documents that he put together explaining the procedure, explaining you know the outcome um, to show that he was quote unquote trying to help her. Um, really, you know, maybe he was just covering his butt we don't know, but there are like documents signed. They're not legal documents because none of this process that he was carrying out was legal at the time, but they are, you know, documents saying, I understand what's going to happen if A follows B equals C kind of thing. Janet goes and she signs these documents and she says, yes, this is something I want to carry out. Um, and almost a week later, so he really only gave her, you know, a week from their initial meeting to when they scheduled this procedure. Um, you know, Janet went and wrote a suicide note for her family and she left it. Um, and I actually have, you know, portions of what it says here. And she essentially wrote, I have decided that for the following reasons to take my own life. This is a decision taken in a normal state of mind and is fully considered. I have Alzheimer's disease and I do not want to let it progress any further. I do not want to put my family or myself through the agony of this terrible disease. Um, in my opinion, just reading those couple excerpts, it sounds super impersonal. Um, I don't know what kind of conversation she might have had previously um, or you know if there was anything else around that, but even just kind of reading that, it almost seems like they were sentences maybe pulled out of some documents that she may have signed. Um, so that's my personal opinion, like reading that initial quote from that note. I was gonna say, so like, I do agree with you because I, I feel like maybe she would have maybe left something else or maybe she didn't want it to be too emotional since the act itself would have already had such a hard impact on the family. Um, but her decision is also like a control thing because she decided when it was her last day and not this disease just taking her life one day out of nowhere like she knew um and i feel like a, another thing that's probably really scary when you like get news like that is like not knowing when your last day is so you're you're probably always living in that fear that today could be my last day you know, this guy, I'm, I might die in my sleep or like literally whatever it is. So I was, I just wanted to put that out there because I'm like, I, I really feel like that's like a leading cause to like making a decision like that, especially yeah. in our situation. Yeah. And I think too, you know, that's kind of why I threw in like that little bit of um, like therapy question there, because I think that when you do get a diagnosis like that, it is so shocking and it is just so like, like life changing that that's something that's really hard to process and i don't know like i can't i couldn't find like from when she was diagnosed to when she actually ended up meeting with jack but um, i'm hoping that that was almost an extended period of time and not like a month from when she found out um just because i think you know as humans you need time to process anything that traumatic um, and I think that when you're still in the middle of processing it, you're more prone to making um, some rash decisions about it or kind of like coming up with quick conclusions without really thinking it all the way through um, just because of, you know, trying to solve problems or just kind of, you know, 
end things before they go too far, whatever it might be. Um, and especially because, you know, it was only really a week from when she first met with Jack to when this procedure was scheduled. So that timeline was really tight too, which is something I do want to mention. But on the day that she um, left the note, she essentially left it for her family. Um, and then after that, Janet was driven to meet up with Kevorkian by her friend and her husband. So her husband was aware, but her three sons were not. Um, so that note essentially was written for them and kind of after the proceedings of all of this, it's no surprise how this goes. Um, her sons were very vocal against this and saying, you know, we don't think our mom was in the right place to make this decision, da 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 da, da. she never once talked to us about it. Um, but her husband did know and he was present in taking her to this procedure. So um, they essentially um, dropped her off to meet with Kevorkian and they claimed that they didn't want to witness the procedure. Um, they were more comfortable with dropping her off and kind of waiting in a hotel room for the news that it was over um, is, is what was on record. So. Meanwhile, like I said, her three sons who were um, adults at this time, I think the oldest was about 28, um, have no idea that any of this is going on. So it's not like they're like 14, 10, 12, they're like 28, 26, 22, like definitely young adults who would be capable of processing this kind of information in a semi-rational way. Um, but going back to Janet, you know, I can't like even imagine what you're feeling at that point in time. Like my husband and what is presumably my best friend are like dropping me off to go meet with some guy that I read in the newspaper and we're just going to go like end my life essentially. Yeah, so I, I, I imagine, I feel like that's like also traumatizing on their part. Like knowing yeah. that's happening. It's like, if that was me, I honestly would just make like go there myself, like mm -hmm. figure out a way, take a taxi walk get picked up by yeah. the doctor like i don't think why would i put my husband and best friend through that and like just have them wait yeah exactly know. no no i agree um and, and i have again like i would have no idea what her husband's feeling at that point to like understand this is your wife decision and like on one hand it's like yeah support her but also like oh my god like like you said that must be so traumatizing um and for me too like i like is it a sense of relief because you're finally getting what you want or is it like how well do i really know this guy does he really know what he's doing like this is a machine that he made with like 30 dollars worth of scrap parts that he's never used before um and i also wonder you know and it doesn't say anywhere in the records and he never spoke on it but like did he ever give her a chance to back out did he ever you know confirm day of this is still something that she wanted and that's something I really wish I knew that I couldn't find anywhere um because you know I, I think that you know consent in all forms is super important especially a decision like this that you cannot um reverse so all that we do know um is that she essentially met up with him and they jumped into that uh famous Volkswagen van that Zach now has in his museum um, and it was on record that Kevorkian was trying to find a facility to conduct this somewhere he could, you know, rent out a space um, where it wasn't as strange as doing it in a van. But 
for many reasons. Um, obviously, there weren't many places that would approve him just conducting weird experiments because his reputation wasn't all that great. Um, so he couldn't really get any, you know, permits or approval to borrow any spaces. So he just ended up um, having her meet him in his van and um, he parked at a local park just in the parking lot and that's where they conducted this procedure. Um, so essentially what happened, um, Jeanette was hooked up to a saline IV. So if any of you have been to the emergency room, that's like a pretty standard procedure as they hook you up to an IV. Um, and then she was also hooked up to a machine that was used to monitor her heart, um, mostly because he needed to make sure that it had stopped and that the procedure was officially over. Um, so after she was hooked up to those two things, um, Kevorkian first administered some pain medication to her um, and then ended up giving Janet a button that she herself would have to press to release a dose of poison into her IV. I don't have the exact chemical concoction of what it was and I also don't feel comfortable sharing what that uh, recipe is because that's not my jam. Um, <laughs> so essentially, you know, after she would press that button, the poison would be administered through her IV and the process um, would begin. And after she pressed that button, Kvorkin actually timed it and he said within six minutes, um, she was officially pronounced dead. Um, and he called that when the heart monitor was flat. Um, and then after that, he disconnected any of the IV tubes and he actually called the police to tell them what had happened. Um, he was obviously questioned by the police because when you call someone and say, hey, I just killed somebody in my van in the parking lot, they're gonna have some questions. Um, and you know, when he was being questioned, the only notable regret that he had was that they wouldn't listen to him to take her body to a medical facility, whether it be a hospital or somewhere else for organ donation. Um, and his exact statement was, if you were waiting for a new heart, you would be all for what I'm doing today. She had a good, strong heart. I know, I watched it on the screen. I don't really like that quote, mm -hmm. but like, he, he does have like a good point that like, like literally like people waiting for a kidney a liver like lungs mm -hmm. you know it's like wow like there you go save so many lives just right then and there yeah and, so, and i think you know a big portion of of why that they couldn't just like rush a body out of what they presumed was a crime scene was because you know in terms of legal legislation this was like a really big gray area because while he had you know agreed to have her come there and he provided her all of the resources she essentially was the one to push that final button and finally make mm -hmm. that call and so they didn't know how to rule it they didn't know if it was a murder case or if it was a suicide case or what to do so they couldn't really like act fast in the way that you would just to transport something that is you know like mm -hmm. you know a, a gunshot situation or you know a robbery gone wrong or something like that it was a very yeah. gray area and they didn't want to move anything um and this is also early 90s but i was gonna mention that i feel like uh her pressing the button kind of answers your question about him like reassuring or like getting reassured like is this something you want to do because the fact that like she was in control like she could press that button whenever you know 
and I, if she didn't want to do it, then she probably would have just left the van. But he also probably did that one because it doesn't seem like he had like evil intent, um, from what I'm hearing right now. Um, but also like in the case, it's like no, like this is my van, but like she did it to herself. Like I did not do anything. It's like. Yeah, that stuff was in the van, but like she pressed the button, so it's like technically like he didn't do it, you know, like he didn't do anything. So yeah. that was probably maybe a, a save my butt kind of action. But yeah, for sure. I I definitely agree with that. I think, you know, the one thing that I'm cautious of and kind of why I'm still on the fence is you know, obviously we only get one side of the story here. We only get his retelling of what happened the second she stepped into that van and he began doing things. And he can tell us, you know, exactly what what he carried out. He can tell us, you know, what was written on paper, but none of us were there and we'll never kind of get the other side of what happened there. Um, and I do want to mention that, you know, obviously Janet was the first time he had ever uh, assisted somebody with something like this. Um, but after Janet and after kind of the big, you know, we don't know really how to rule this case. So it's kind of a gray area. And he, you know, eventually he wasn't charged for anything with Janet because of kind of that gray area. And some of the thinking, Kayla, that actually you mentioned of, you know, she did it and it was her decision. Um, but, you know, after that had kind of blown over, he then went on to um, aid in the assisted suicides of over 130 patients in less than eight years. I did not think it was that many people. That's a lot of yeah. people. Wow. Wait, let me average that out. Because it's, you said 130? Uh-huh. Okay, that's like... 16 17 a year so yeah. like one at least once a month mm -hmm. for eight years consistently mm -hmm. yeah wow that's crazy yeah um and you know kind of because of that and kind of the you know obviously growing uh, knowledge of what was happening because, you know, every time a case like that gets reported in, they have to add it to the list of weird things that's happening. Um, he eventually was convicted of second degree murder and he did serve eight years in prison. Um, originally, he was sentenced to 10 to 25 years, but was let out on parole after eight years for good behavior. So he only ended up doing um, eight years actually in jail for what he was doing. Um, but, you know, that's kind of the the basis of what he was doing and some of his actions. And a lot of people today now having, you know, some, some time to, to step away from it, um, hesitate to define him as a serial killer or not. Um, you know, he's not down in serial killer hall of fame, like 10 buddy or, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer or anything like that, because mm -hmm. it's not, you know, brutal, gruesome, obviously, you know, inherently evil actions that were taken. Um, but you know, it was the fact that he was trying to help individuals. Um, but still the process of him encouraging and contributing and helping somebody, um, and their life as a medical professional was a practice that was extremely frowned upon and not necessarily 
legal. Like the one thing that mm-hmm. I never really, I never really thought about it, but there is no um, like legal in the United States, I should say. There's no you know legal jurisdiction that says you know a human has the right to end their own life. Um, mm-hmm. So that's something that I thought was super interesting, but. To this day, he is kind of credited for igniting the national debate about um, euthanasia, which is the fancy word for assisted suicide. Um, And it's his kind of actions way back then that would eventually lead to legislation that we have now, like Oregon's Death with Dignity Act. Um, And that was enacted in 1997, and that does allow the... uh, patients who are diagnosed as terminally ill access to life-ending drugs. Um, But I I just, I want to know your guys' thoughts because, you know, it is something where we won't ever get the second side of that story. We won't ever really know what happened there or kind of, and I think too, his his fascination with it from way back when is just kind of like an eerie pretense mm-hmm. to what he actually ended up doing mm-hmm. and I really hope that his intentions um were good and that he didn't just think of it as like a really really weird science experiment and kind of preyed on these people who were going through a really hard part of their life um but at the same time I think you know in the world we live in today you know we do now have legislation that does say you know if you are at that place and you are diagnosed as terminally ill like you should have access to the decision to, you know, Kayla, like you said, have that control and kind of picking when you go. So mm-hmm. it is very controversial. His entire life is very controversial, but he's mm-hmm. not a traditional serial killer in the sense that everyone knows that he was like, you know, hiding and terrorizing people. So it's kind of creepy that he was like so fascinated with it. Um, I don't know if he was like fascinated really with the process or it was just seeing people hit the end of their life yeah. and it was maybe satisfying to him in some way he he might have really had like good intentions of just like helping these people and like believing that this should be something that is practiced in the medical field because these people do not want to live anymore yeah so it's very interesting i don't think i'd classify him as a serial killer just because he literally it was just like the medication and like they were aware of what was going on but no i i agree and i think that's kind of where i i land with it too um he is like technically classified as a serial killer because again like his actions weren't deemed as legal like you don't legally mm-hmm. have the right to help somebody and their life um like it's just kind of like you should be helping that person stay alive and yeah. whatever mm-hmm. so because mm-hmm. of that like he is technically classified as a serial killer but the other thing that i um wanted to ask you and i i don't really know i haven't been there i don't even know if this was there when you went but um a lot of people say that part of the reason why zach purchased this vehicle um to include in his museum is because he was really curious to see um if you know any of the individuals or the patients who did end up dying in that van um were really you know laid to rest or if they were you know regretful or remorseful at all or if you know Mm -hmm. there was any kind of energy attached to um that object because so many people did end up dying in that van um and that i don't know like i don't know if that is something where you know because they did feel like they were in control of it 
you know, if there would be any kind of attachment there or how that works. And I think it kind of goes back into what you said about, you know, like there's a difference between, you know, demonic and ghosts. Um, mm-hmm. And in my head, this is definitely like a ghost type situation. Yeah. So, so I don't know how, how I feel about that, but I think it would be interesting to like kind of see like, oh, like I don't want, like I'm Janet and like my last, like, 10, 10 minutes and like I'm in this mm-hmm. like little tiny van that's like okay mm-hmm. cool guess yeah it's it was there when when we went um and it's pretty small I mean it's like a, I mean it's a standard like Volkswagen yeah so like they actually had like it set up like as if someone was lying there like with the wow. IV and stuff um, so they had it set up to how it was when people would go in there for assisted suicide. I mean, you think about it, like you said, like 130 people died in that car. Like, that's already spooky enough, just mm-hmm. knowing, even if it's like, oh, my mom passed away in there. Yeah, whatever. I'd be like, oh. Like, it's just creepy that someone had, like, their last breath in there. Um, but it is 3 o'clock in the morning. Oh, my God, the witching hour. Um, what? So, oh, sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. What was that? Do you see what she does to me, guys? She's just like, oh, creepy, spooky little tidbit. Okay, good night, Jenna. I'm like, great, cool. I'm sleeping with the lights on. But, guys, um, we really do hope that you kind of enjoyed the these story times, and we hope they mm-hmm. scratched a little bit of whatever uh, horror itch you might have, whether that's, you know, murder, crime, or paranormal. Um, we tried to give a little bit of everything to anyone. Um, so stay tuned for more Spooky Time content mm-hmm. this month. We have a lots of fun stuff planned. Maybe a guest. Who knows? We'll see. We'll see if we can wrangle one. Keep your fingers crossed. Um, but I really think, guys, this is, you know, a month of content, you know, um, a mini series, if you will, that I don't think you guys are going to want to miss. Um, but with that, Miss Kayla Marie, is there anything else you want to tell our lovely listeners? So without being said, good morning, because it is. Good night, <laughs> good evening, wherever you guys are in the world. And we will see you guys in the next pod. Bye. Bye. Adios. Boo. Boo.